The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox from Karen and myself. I just wanted to show you the London morning before we get into anything. That is the serenity of the London dawn here at 6 a.m. Right, let's get into the intensity, though, of the markets, including Chinese trade data coming in better than expected, but continuing to contract, with monthly exports sinking almost 9%, adding to a run of weak data. The Nasdaq leading losses on Wall Street. This as a, a really resilient service sector in the United States. The data there raising fears inflation could have to further run to the upside. Well, our U.S. colleagues will discuss the outlook with the Goldman CEO, David Solomon. That is an exclusive interview this evening, 2215 CET. The EU Commission designates six tech giants as gatekeepers under its Digital Markets Act, giving the group six months to comply. The EU's Thierry Breton tells CNBC the bloc has the power to force companies to act. We have tools, including um, to break up this company, but I will never want to use it. And I can tell you that the discussion that we have with all these companies are professional and I believe going in the right direction. Sterling falls to a three-month low as Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey questions how much higher rates need to go, telling lawmakers the end is in sight. We are much nearer now to the top of the cycle. And I'm not there for saying we're at the top of the cycle because we've got a meeting to come, but I think we are much nearer to it on interest rates on the basis of current evidence. And the Irish packaging giant Smurfit Kappa confirms merger talks with the US paper company Westrock with a combined entity potentially headquartered in Dublin and listed in New York. Good morning to you. Was a favor by showing them that stunning shot but what? now i've just gone down a rabbit hole looking for bad weather because in the morning right. when there's a red sky or pink sky yes. it's meant to be a warning for the oh, shepherds i did that out of coma like <laughs> red sky night shepherds delight exactly. red sky in the morning shepherds warning so i started i thinking i was thinking today was meant to be a perfect day here in london so i was starting to go through the you know the the weather warning yes. and looking for anything bad coming later in the day because it suggests what is it a high pressure system that's already moved east uh, more often than not making way for wet and windy low pressure that according to some sort of weather analysis in the sun around the sky but doesn't suggest today is going to turn thankfully we're well, setting up for a well, good day. I'll tell you what I'll do with what you just said about the weather there. I will say in one hour's time to the minute at 7.03 London time 8.03 we're going to go and speak to the chairman of Lloyd's of London uh, about their latest n- numbers and we know of course that climate and climate risk and climate change are absolutely pivotal to the insurance and reinsurance industry at the moment as well. So we'll, we'll do a little bit more work on weather. So it's not completely random how we do stuff on this show. Lovely to see you, by the way. Me too. <laughs> right, let's get into the data. China reported another trade slump in August, although imports and exports both fell less than expected. Exports declined 8.8% on the year. That is a, uh, a, 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 a bit of a jump from July's 14.5% fall. Meanwhile, imports dipped 7.3% on the year. Well, let's get some analysis now. And as ever, Sam joins us to, uh, to digest and just go through the numbers. Sam, nice to see you. 
You too, Steve. Very good morning to you. So what we've seen at a headline level is certainly some marginal improvement there and better than expected numbers on the export and the import side, as you very clearly mentioned. And certainly that does show signs um, that are encouraging and consistent with um, the other positive data that we've been getting in terms of what the PMI was telling us about certainly some degree of stabilisation, um, despite the fact that we continue to see a fifth month of contraction uh, when it came to that factory activity. There were uh, still some green shoots within that data. Uh, also, uh, in terms of uh, some of the deflationary pressures perhaps easing when we look at the PPI, of course, that will be the next thing to watch, um, certainly over the weekend when we get that data. Um, so overall, what we're seeing is uh, signs of a bit of a pickup when it comes to that foreign and also domestic demand. But uh, it does continue to show that the problems persist. Uh, the headwinds continue, certainly for these factories over in China and also the domestic uh, situation. No doubt there is no shortage of problems when you look at youth unemployment, when you look at the debt, when you look at the property sector and what the authorities are trying to do there. Um, so economists that we've spoken to have certainly suggested that while this is an encouraging set of data, we perhaps need some more information over the next few months in terms of that overall trajectory uh, if we can uh, certainly start to see uh, more solid meaningful signs of recovery there um, certainly there has been some suggestion that Beijing might have to get more aggressive uh, with some of their stimulus measures of course what we've seen in terms of the policy response over the weekend is the um, or I should say over the week is the authorities trying to uh, stimulate some of that domestic demand, uh, which they hope will offset some of the uh, weaker external demand. Um, and particularly, they're focusing on the property sector. We've seen them uh, talking about lowering mortgage rates um, and also, of course, some of the cities uh, easing some of their mortgage rules. Um, that did help, certainly, the markets get out of that rut that nine-month low that we'd seen uh, in recent weeks. But the rally did, didn't last long. And that certainly is what analysts were, were warning about, that it really wouldn't have legs, uh, given that some of the support measures, they're not too convinced, will go far enough right now to fix this lack of confidence uh, when you have these other issues, uh, certainly in terms of a lack of confidence in the market and, of course, people keeping the money in the bank. So uh, despite... The better than expected figures, we continue to see weakness playing out for Chinese equities. And we've also seen further depreciation pressure on the Chinese currency as well today, uh, despite this aggressive defending uh, of the UN that we've seen with another stronger than expected fixing by the PBOC this morning to that UN midpoint. Guys, back to you. Great work, Sam. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. Let's get to Michael Pettis, senior fellow at Carnegie China. Michael, really good to see you. And, and I was looking at some of your copy as well. And whether it's short-term cyclical problems or long-term structural, I think a lot of people are struggling to get their head around what's going on in China. One obvious thing to say, though, and I think this resonates with what you've been saying as well, guess what? Countries that industrialise, that go from agrarian to industrialization, eventually slow down. It happens to every single one of us as well. And China is going through an element of that as well. And I don't think enough people are factoring in the fact that this is just what happens. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Yeah, well, um, I, I would say it's even more than that. China followed a growth model that made a lot of sense uh, 30 years ago. It's a model that pushed up investment growth to probably the highest we've ever seen in any country in history. Now, when you're hugely underinvested, as China was in the 1980s, 
That's a great model. But every successful growth model makes itself obsolete by resolving the problems it's trying to address. And that probably happened about 10, 15 years ago. Chinese investment levels reached the point at which they could no longer continue to absorb such high increases, but they were unable to stop the model. And as a result, we've ended up with massive amounts of overbuilding in the property sector and in infrastructure. And we have to work our way through all of that. Michael, when it comes to uh, the catalyst here that we're looking at uh, for the China story, it feels as though geopolitics are part of the issue, but also uh, the broader conditions on the ground in China. I was just raking through some of the, the numbers to Southeast Asian nations. Shipments, they're down double digits, 13%. Uh, the European Union, that is a steep fall, down more than 19%. The one that surprised me, though, was the United States, where you saw a drop for 9.5%, for but that is a continuation of a decline for a longer period of time. As you pick through the different parts of the world, where is the problem for China in future? Is it across the Southeast Asian nations? Is it Europe? Is it the United States? Is it all of the, the above? You know, what, what we've seen when we look at the export numbers is there seems to have been a shift away from Europe and the U.S. towards Southeast Asia. But you have to be very careful about that. A lot of that is driven for political reasons. What ends up happening is that ultimately it's still European and American demand for Chinese goods. Only now those goods are delivered through Vietnam or Mexico or Malaysia or whatever. So what happens in the US economy and in the European economy will matter a lot to China. It shouldn't. As the second largest economy in the world, China really should be relying on its own domestic demand. But as you know, uh, China's biggest problem is its very weak domestic demand. And you can see that in the trade surplus. You know, the, the surplus is down this month, but for the year, the surplus is, uh, what, $581 billion. That's more than, that's about 5.5% of China's GDP. And by the way, that's about 1.2% of the GDP of the rest of the world. And that represents not so much manufacturing efficiency, but just the sheer extent of weak domestic demand. Well, um, you've touched upon some amazing points that I've been reading about recently as well. And, and how about this? Rather than relying on that domestic demand, which is really struggling for a whole host of reasons we've talked about as well, not reaching middle income status, the property market bubble and the problems that's bringing, the, the fact that the Chinese are more concerned about the demographics as well. There's a whole host of other reasons as well. But instead of co concentrating on reviving domestic, is there a danger that they also focus once again on those exports and the lowering of the terms of trade, i.e. more depreciation of the RIMBI, and thereafter we start getting into some trade war territory? Well, I think that's already happening. Not so much through depreciation of the RIMBI, which has been pretty stable against most currencies except the dollar. But um, China really has a demand side problem. And if you look at what happened in the US, Europe, the UK, governments responded by supporting the demand side. But in China, they never did that. Most of the stimulus was aimed at the supply side, so additional subsidies for the business sector. And of course, those subsidies come at the expense of Chinese households. So what they do simultaneously is they make Chinese manufacturing more quote unquote competitive at the same time that they reduce domestic demand. 
So that means that one of the ways China is trying to address its weak, its its internal problems, is by externalizing them by running larger surpluses. And and again, I want to stress the surplus that China has this year is really astonishingly large. I don't think we've ever seen such a large surplus in global terms ever before in history. Michael, can I get into some of the aversion now for uh, investors? And there was one stat that I was just looking at that uh, is quite startling. Uh, Chinese equities, uh, including shares listed in Hong Kong and the United States, represent just 3.1% of the MSCI all-country world index. That weighting is uh, less than individual companies now like Apple and Microsoft. So we're seeing pulling back when it comes to some of the passives. The actives, too, are seeing a trough in terms of the willingness to invest. What do you make of the ability of China to turn this around? And do you think investors are going to come back at some point? Well, I think what we're seeing, what we've been seeing in the last couple of years is a split in the investment base. So long-term investors, value investors seem to be moving out of China. And what we're seeing are a lot of hedge funds and short-term investors taking advantage of short-term changes in the market. So for example, uh, Beijing has been very clear for the last month or two that they want the market to turn around and rise, and they're doing everything they can cutting margin requirements, reducing trading fees, et cetera, et cetera. And that type of signaling effect can be very powerful in the short term. So I think we're starting to see uh, short-term investors, hot money investors, return to China to take advantage of what I suspect will be a fairly decent market over the rest of the year. But unfortunately, this is the kind of money that developing countries worry about the most because it sweeps in during good times and sweeps out during bad times. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, the, the East Asia all over again, that money flows, which was uh, such a large part of the problem, but perhaps not such a degree in China compared. Michael, uh, we love your analysis, and I also read your South China Morning Post piece as well, so thank you very much indeed for that. Michael Pettis, Senior Fellow, Carnegie, China. Really, really interesting data out of the United States and interesting ramifications for the market. We'll come to this now. The Federal Reserve's latest Beige Book report pointed to modest economic growth in the US in the past two months. I think we've seen some of that, haven't we? Uh, whilst the jobs market also cooled off. Some districts reported consumers may have exhausted their pandemic savings. Well, again, we've heard this from the San Francisco Fed already, haven't we? But the Fed said that consumers continue to spend heavily on travel and services. The survey, which comes ahead of the FOMC meeting this month, and don't forget we go into a blank period, a blackout period uh, from Saturday this week. So you got all the Fed speakers this week and then they go quiet, okay? Uh, anyway, also noted that inflation pressures have abated, but higher interest rates continue to put pressure on the housing market. This is the bit of data I thought was fascinating. Growth in the US services sector unexpectedly pick up in the month of August, according to the latest survey by the Institute for Supply and Management. Non-manufacturing PMI rose to 54.5 last month. Now you compare that to what we've been seeing in Europe, it's a very different picture. So it rose to 54.5 last month, boosted by new orders as well as higher input prices. It had some ramifications, certainly for the technology stocks, Karen. Yeah, it certainly did. I think there are pricing components in the ISM that were quite key. The ISM services index rising 2.1 percentage points. And uh, there was a share of companies showing us that they are in doing those increases and passing them on. The manufacturing side, we didn't see as much uh, strength there in terms of the 48.4 percent uh, component of the ISM, but the increase was 5.8 points. So I think the market 
extrapolating into services and manufacturing, looking again at that inflation story and saying, look, we are getting strength in the economy, still strengthen some of these prices. It means that we're not done yet in slaying the inflation dragon. So we went right back to all the old arguments that the market had pushed to one side on the back of that cooling jobs market data last week and some optimism on the uh, inflation numbers we've seen recently saying, look, we still potentially have work for the Fed to do here. And the question is, where is that neutral rate still for the economy? So the markets, you can see, selling off down 1% in particular on the Nasdaq. Uh, that was the area of concentration for some of the selling. Seven tenths down on the S&P 500 and six tenths coming off the Dow. So across the board, it was a day of red, continuing the red that we've seen in some of the recent sessions. Uh, so far, second negative session in a row for the Dow and across on the S&P 500. To what we've got elsewhere on those tech stocks, uh, challenging day away from that broader narrative around the cost of capital for technology for the likes of Apple. Uh, this was very much an Apple-centric story as there were reports that uh, China has reportedly banned officials at central government agencies from bringing iPhones or other foreign devices into offices. Uh, that was uh, a catalyst for the stock to move south, 3.5% in the red and outpacing other major tech names to the downside. Amazon down 1.4%, about a third coming off Meta. NVIDIA stock, though, also having a weaker day of trade yesterday. To the Treasury market, this is what we saw as a result of the ISM. We stepped up, didn't we, on some of these trades 4.28 on the 10-year. You're seeing it at the short end in particular, back above that 5% handle, 5.01 on the two-year yield. To the dollar, with the support we're seeing from the yield story, it's been a dollar positive catalyst, sterling weaker as a result. And you can see slippage below 125 on the trade on cable, but also not helped out by Bailey, suggesting that uh, there may not be too much more room for rate hikes in the UK. Now, euro dollar on the back foot, 107.18. So the lower end of that range of 107 to 108. Dollar yen weakening this morning as uh, the safe haven gives back uh, some territory here. 147.58 dollar yuan is supported despite intervention again by the Chinese. Steve. Right, let us uh, just tell you what's coming up on this show and on our programming because U.S. colleagues uh, will discuss the strength of the U.S. economy as well as the banking sector with Goldman Sachs' CEO David Solomon. Do not miss that exclusive interview at 22.15. And let's be brutally honest about it. Mr. Solomon has a lot of of internal issues over at Goldman's, keeping people on side, shareholders, staff, the board. So that will be an absolutely fascinating interview. Right, ahead of that though, on this programme, the European Union doubling down on big tech. Is it? Now that's fascinating. Urging companies to help create a safer digital space. Well, we're going to hear more from the EU Internal Market Commissioner, Thierry Breton, who spoke to Sylvia that's just after the break. Uh, elsewhere, paper and packaging giant Smurfit Kappa says it's in uh, conversations uh, with the U.S. paper company Westrock over a, a potential huge merger. Uh, we'll bring you the latest on that potential tie-up later this hour. And don't miss our interview with the Euronext CEO, always good form, Stefan Bujna, as the company ramps up its focus on sustainable finance. That's coming up at 8.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
The European Union has designated six so-called gatekeepers under its new Digital Markets Act. Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, ByteDance, Meta and Microsoft have until early next year to comply with rules, which the bloc says are aimed at clamping down on anti-competitive practices. Sylvia joins us with more. Sylvia, this has long been in the works, that yes. if you align in the space and you hold the keys, you need to open up that gate. Totally. Just give us a sense of how far these rules go and also whether they could potentially go all the way back to the United States. I mean, this is a big moment for the big tech, and I actually want to focus on what this means for consumers, because ultimately this is what it's all about. So from now on, essentially, all of these big six companies that the European Commission announced uh, yesterday, the so-called gatekeepers, they have to put in place things that will allow users, for instance, to uninstall um, any sort of software that comes with, uh, for instance, with your phone. So users will have more choice in terms of what they are using on their devices, for instance. At the same time, these companies will not be able to essentially promote their own software. If, if, for instance, if you're trying to use Amazon, you won't be able, I should say, Amazon won't be able to promote their goods and their services at the top, rather giving essentially a fair level playing field to all of the companies that are trying to sell the goods on Amazon. So these are some of the changes that are coming up in Europe. It is a revolutionary moment. It is a landmark moment for users and for the big tech because indeed they have a lot of homework to do in the next six months. And it was in this context that I had the chance to speak to Thierry Breton. He's uh, one of the most important people in Brussels when it comes to this legislation. And he explained to me what they're trying to achieve with the Digital Markets Act. This is the first time that we are doing it. It's extremely important for these companies. They will have now six months to comply with our rules, you know, to give more freedom for end, for end users, to make sure that you could, you could select your own apps, uh, that you are not, not a prisoner from this platform, that platforms, uh, that you will be able to compete in fair competition, that you will make sure that when uh, your small companies, your data are not stolen uh, uh, to have a platform selling the same product and compete with you unfairly. So this is everything that we are now putting in place in Europe. But of course, uh, um, uh, we, um, we have some very specific uh, obligations and rules. Uh, you should be a systemic platform, a big platform. You should have uh, 7.5 billion of revenues at least, or 75 billion of market cap. You should have more than 10,000 professional users, or, or 45 million end uh, uh, consumers. And then, of course, we have some specific rules for all the services. Some are obvious. Some others will need more time to uh, uh, make sure that uh, these companies. Um, um, have to comply with our new rules. So we are now starting this morning the process. Now I noticed that there's an investigation on the iMessage, another on uh, the iPad OS, and in general you consider Apple one of these big gatekeepers. So I was just wondering, do you think Apple is too big and therefore should be break up? No, I, I never, I, I don't speak on this company or that company. It's not my, um, it's not my, my job, it's not my mission. Um, uh, I enjoy to be able to offer to uh, uh, successful companies, European or non-European, uh, to have the ability to enter into our uh, digital market, which is, by the way, um, one and a half bigger than the one in the United States, so it's very attractive. We are happy that uh, big uh, non-European uh, companies could benefit from it, 
but we have rules. But again, uh, if these companies are big, it means I'm coming from business myself. It means that it means that they have been successful, which is good. Uh, so, uh, but 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 there is a but. Uh, with uh, a new rules, you have of course some sanctions. And if this company is normal, that's life. That's the life of business. Uh, it has been, by the way, voted by our democracy. Um, and if these companies do not comply, and I hope that they will all comply, then we will have the ability to have fine up to 10% uh, of their global revenue worldwide. Even maybe if this is uh, uh, done on a repeated way, uh, up to 20%. And uh, if they continue, yes, we have tools including um, to break up this company, but I will never want to use it. And I can tell you that the discussion that we have with uh, all these companies are professional and I believe going in the right direction. So Thierry Breton there speaking to me yesterday in Brussels. I have to say, though, that it's not just about the Digital Markets Act, which is essentially focused on ensuring fair competition in the European Union. There's also the Digital Services Act, or the DSA, which is more focused on content. And therefore, all of this to say that there's a lot of work for the big tech to do in the coming months in Europe, if indeed they don't want to be faced with hefty fines in the future. What fascinates me are the companies and the products that are not on the list. For instance, Bing is not on the list. Yeah. It's not designated a gatekeeper yet or their Edge browser. And Apple's iMessage service also doesn't make the cut. So in some ways, it really is the number one in terms of market share for some of these services that is the gatekeeper. This could market change. and. What jumped out to me too was, so if I send a message on iMessage on Apple, yeah. it won't go to a WhatsApp service, for instance. But down the track, the interoperability yes. means that some of this could actually happen. So it is a, quite a sea change, isn't it? Yeah, if you imagine this future where you're actually able to message people on Signal using WhatsApp, it's kind of weird, to be honest, but this is where they want to land at, is having consumers. Who wants to? Who wants to? As a consumer, this is the point I was yes. raising yesterday on set, I don't want my, let's say I use WhatsApp, my message to appear on iMessage or vice versa. I'm quite happy keeping it all separate and delineated. Why is that? Is it because you're worried that maybe more companies will have access to your data? Absolutely. But the idea is... As, 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 as anyone who knows, yeah. there are all kinds of people looking at your emails. Yeah, of course. You know, and I'm not even talking about looking at a work server email as well, which is a completely different set of rules and different, different kettle of fish. All kinds of companies. Yeah. You, you know, you've only got to have a conversation and suddenly the adverts appear. Well, it's the same story with your Gmail or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm quite happy to have a degree of delineation. It acts as a personal firewall for my communications. But, it also but the acts idea is a high sorry. amount of activity for you. For instance, if you send me a message yeah. to iMessage and you send me a message to WhatsApp, I have to toggle between the two different apps to try and yeah. find the messages, right. and I could miss one of them well, instead of tell, going to the same app. Just tell your colleague friends, I only want to use WhatsApp. Then. It's I only a want question of practicality but also of choice. So if you don't want to do that, you're not going to be forced to do that. The idea here is to give consumers a choice. If they want to do yeah, that, they will be able know. to oh, do come, that. Come on, you two. When have we ever, and by the way, you're brilliant reporting and a great interviewer, but when have we ever read the terms and conditions on, uh, 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 when have we not accepted cookies? When have we, we know that the... I refuse cookies. Uh, 
as yeah, much as possible. But I mean, like, like, and you go on to a new site. Do you accept our terms, or do you want to personally manage them? And like, ninety nine point nine percent of people, yeah. including myself, I, I, I say, oh, I just can't be faffed to go through managing my different criteria. Bought this cookie or that thing. So yeah. you just say yes, I'll accept cookies. Yes, I, I'm, I'm probably getting in trouble with some NBC module now. As what I'm saying. But 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 the fact of the matter is, most people do not go through the inner workings of their Gmail account or the inner workings of their WhatsApp or whatever and just go through every single permission of it yeah. and work, oh my, if I do that, then I'm not allowed to do this. And if I don't see that, then I can't do it. Nobody does it. But what can regulators do apart from giving people the choice to do that at the same time that allow people these big players the to actually... That they use different messaging systems, have exercised their choice to use different messaging systems rather than have them all combined. True, but this is also broader than just the messaging services. What about, this is about, poor, buying what about all those poor insider traders out there who we all know have about poor. five different phones and about five <laughs> different messaging systems and that, so that they can do all their disgustingly uh, front-running trades on different systems? How are those poor insider traders who watch this channel as well, how, how are they going to cope with this when everything's collated? I feel sorry for them. They won't be able to cheat as much the system. Yeah, just the sentence, poor insider traders. Exactly. I'm joking, <laughs> no. by the way. I think they're erroneous and should be locked up with long, white collar crime is as bad as anything. On a serious note, I think yeah. that the Europeans are trying to make their life easier because don't sure. forget they've gone after some of these tech companies with antitrust cases in the past. So yeah. this sets a very clear agenda through one piece of legislation yes. about what's okay and what's not in terms of promoting your own content. I and mean, Amazon was a great example that you gave, for instance, uh, going into the space of offering a lot of the basic items that marketplace sellers had produced over the years using its own data to crunch what were viable areas of business, right? And this is how this all came about, essentially, is to give the European Commission just more tools to deal with these uh, big tech cases. Sylvia, thank okay. you very much and for sparking an interesting discussion on the show. Now, yeah. coming up yeah. ahead. I've got plenty more questions. <laughs> well done. That's good. But that's the whole point of Scorebox, dare I say, to stimulate this kind of stuff. Yes. So well done. Totally. You. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.